Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. If you've got your Bibles, please do turn to Luke chapter 20. Let me take your deep dive again into a passage of Scripture. Um, We'll be looking, I think, from verse 20. Let me just remind you where we are. It's Holy Week. These are the final few days of Christ's life on earth. Every second counts. Every moment seems crucial, and every word that he speaks seems to have significance and importance, and every day without fear or anxiety, Jesus is found in the same place, in his Father's house, in the temple courts, and he's teaching the people. He could hide away, he could lie low and and wait for all the kind of drama to disappear, but he doesn't, even though the pressure is mounting. And it's Passover week, and the temple is full of pilgrims. And I imagine that from morning till night, Jesus is surrounded by crowds all day who sit and listen to his teaching. Wouldn't we be the same if Christ was here and began to teach? You'd be like, whoa. Like his understanding of the scriptures, his revelation would be so overwhelming. And amongst the crowd, though, there are spies Spies from every sect and faction of the Jewish faith, all keeping an eye, a beady eye, on Jesus. And imagine they're taking notes on every word that comes out of his mouth and they're analyzing it and assessing it. And how does it compare with the Holy Scriptures? Examining and evaluating each and every word, hoping that he'll make a mistake. Hoping that he'll say something wrong, slip up, drop a faux pas. Say something blasphemous, accidentally swear. I sent a video to Ian yesterday with a a pastor's blooper on. They said, is it okay if I share this at prayers? And he said, no, I don't think that is. You know, because it happens accidentally when you're speaking, something falls out of your mouth that you're like, oh, you know me. You know, that's that's like my route one. Like something's going to fall out that I wish I hadn't said. And they're hoping that Jesus might accidentally reveal his sin or, 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 or something will come out that will undermine the story of his life, undermine his identity. If you've been a preacher in any kind of setting, whether you're like big stage or small church or whatever, you've probably encountered a preaching troll. Um, they, they, you know, sometimes they're well-meaning, but you know, when you finish talking, sometimes there will be people there who want to talk to you about what you've just shared. And you know, you've finished and actually it's a real vulnerable time after you've just finished talking. And then there might be some people that loiter around to give you some helpful feedback. And you're hoping in your heart that they're gonna say that was the most moving talk I've ever heard. And I feel like it's transformed my life. I will never be the same again. Or at least you want them to pop them and go, I knew knew you when you were dead a little, I know your mum and dad. You know, something nice that you can go home with going, oh, that's nice, you have a selfie, me and you, that's lovely. (laughs) But often they wanna come and they wanna correct your teaching. They want to tell you maybe how you got something wrong. They know the nuances of the Greek and they studied it during their dissertation and what you've just brought was actually wrong. I had one guy who brought an encouragement to me as I finished the talk. 
because I'd mentioned all so very briefly about 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've done the walk through the Bible. Have you ever done that? It's brilliant. But the, one of the things that you learn is 400 years silence where God didn't speak. And he needed me to know that that wasn't true. And he wanted to uh, uh, give me great examples of how definitely God had been speaking throughout the 400 years I'd just not done my homework. It was nothing to do with the talk that I was bringing. He then gave me a 10-minute talk <laughs> on what I could have brought if I'd just spent the time. And he did it with a smile on his face and food in his beard. <laughs> but he was... <laughs> And he works in accounts. <laughs> but it's next level for Jesus, right? Because these guys aren't just trying to put, like, spot the little nuances in his, in his theology. These guys are trying to find a mistake that Jesus might make and use it to kill him. Use it to destroy him. And so they are looking at all possible options and avenues for how they might expose him. They need to disprove his claims because everybody knows by now that Jesus is good. Let's just remind ourselves, nothing that Jesus has done yet looks evil. They know he's good. In fact, the problem is, is that he's a bit better than good. He's almost too good and he's bearing all the hallmarks of a Messiah but he just can't be the Messiah. It's almost like that. he's good, he's really good, but he just can't be the Messiah. We can't have him as our Messiah because even though they are desperate and they're waiting for a Messiah, the Messiahship that Jesus is offering is just not the one they want. We don't want a guy from Nazareth. We don't want the son of a carpenter. We don't want the illegitimate child. We don't want the one born into poverty. We don't want the rabbi without a rabbi. We don't want the one whose disciples are this unschooled, ordinary bunch of ragtag sort of fishermen and tax collectors and weirdos. Like he is not the one. They just can't see it. Like he's good, but he's, ah, oh, he can't be. Surely he is not the one. They're adamant Jesus is not the Messiah. And therefore they need him to undermine himself. I just hope he can slip up and say something that we can go, blasphemy. Finally, we've got him. Let's nail him. And so they've been sending people into the crowd and they've been bringing these super hard questions, giving him seemingly impossible questions that he has to answer. And either way in which he answers it, he will almost certainly incriminate himself. It says this in verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. In Matthew and Mark's version of this, they actually give a little bit more narrative. And they talk about those people, those spies that came to Jesus. And they identify the spies as the disciples of the Pharisees and some Herodians. Why is that important? Why do I mention it? It's because it's fascinating, right? These are two Jewish sects, the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they hate each other. They couldn't be more different. See, the Herodians are happy with Herod. They follow Herod, this um, Roman-placed authority over them. 
And the Pharisees are old school. They want it the way it's always been. They're law keepers. They need to get rid of the Roman oppressors. So you've got people happy with the Romans and people who hate the Romans. And yet, when it comes to Christ, they are united in their hatred. They've got to get rid of the king. And so they come up with a belter of a question. 21, so the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I love it. They start off with a bit of, um, bit of buttering up. A bit of flattery, and actually when the trolls come, they always say, that was a really interesting talk. I I really enjoyed some of what you said. And that's what's happening here. They come, they think, we we could get to Jesus, because we'll tell him, he does a load of good, you're doing so many good things. What you say, we we really like. And then they hit him with a question. Should we pay our taxes? Now, the Herodians and the Pharisees completely differ on this because the Herodians are all like, yeah, we're in for Roman taxes because we follow Herod and that's the way of Herod. Pay your taxes, that's it. But the Pharisees, like, why would we give our money, our godly money, our system up for oppression? Why would we give our money to the oppressors that keep us and hold us in captivity? And so... They're thinking, which way is Jesus going to go? If he says no, then he's a revolutionary. Then the Romans are going to try and take him out. And they want that. The Pharisees are like, yeah, well, we're, we're well up for that. And if they say yes to taxes, then he's siding with oppression. And so they can reject him at that point too. The trap is set. But this is a trap in which Jesus is going to step. And Jesus is freaking awesome. Jesus is amazing. And he knows exactly what's going on and he knows what they're up to and he sees their duplicity. And Jesus asks for a Roman coin. He asks and they give him a denarius, one day's wage, and he says, whose image and inscription are on this coin? Whose face is depicted and there on the face of the coin is the head of Tiberius Caesar. Caesar, they reply. They get their question right. And then he says to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And the answer is so simple and yet so wonderfully extraordinary. See, on the coin is Caesar. His image is depicted there. And his image proclaims his sovereignty. Wherever the coin is used, Caesar rules. Take the coin outside of the Roman Empire and it has no use. You couldn't take it to North Africa or, well, actually North Africa had Romans, but you couldn't take it to the Americas and use a coin of the Romans. It would have no value. If Caesar has power, then pay him your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. It's Caesar's. If he's identified upon it, then it belongs to him, then give it back to him. And in that moment, I imagine the Pharisees are like, we have got Jesus now. He fell for the trap. He's taken the way of the oppressor. We can reject him. He has undermined the very nature of our faith. He's back in the Romans. But then in the same breath, Jesus says, and and give to God 
what is God's? What? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Whatever carries the image of Caesar, give back to Caesar because it belongs to him. And whatever carries the image of God, give it to God. Wait. What did he say? What carries the image of God? And the penny drops. As, the, as all in attendance begin to recite the words of the Torah around their minds, they begin to think about the opening verses of their holy scriptures, the beginning of the Bible that we call Genesis. And every one of those Jews would have known these amazing verses from every sect and every fraction because it would have been the first thing that they would have learned in the Holy Scriptures. After the creation of the world, it says this, we call it Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And it's incredible, the Imago Dei is what we call it. We are made in the image of God. We are the image of the divine, the creator of all things. His image is on us. The coins of Caesar are man-made, handcrafted. But we are the handiwork of God himself. There's eight billion of us in every corner of the, of the globe. And the sovereignty of God therefore exists wherever his image is on display. His authority is therefore boundaryless, on display in every nation and tribe and tongue. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's wombs, predestined before the world and formed to be conformed to his very likeness. We carry the image of the glory of God. We are a reflection. That's what it means in the Greek, a reflection, a high definition, an ultra HD version of God on display in the world. It's incredible. Caesar, you can have your coins, give your life to God. Verse 26, and they're unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by the answer, they became silent. They come with the best. They come with the question that cannot be unpicked. And yet Jesus leaves them in awe. That's what it means, leaves them in awe. They marvel at his answer. They're overwhelmed and astonished. They are speechless in response. They have no comeback. And I wonder what their response is. How many of them that day surrendered their, surrendered their, surrendered, surrendered their life to God that day? I wonder. It's surprising how many people, when they teach this passage, you know, as I'm going through and researching, what did they say and what did they say? So many people use this as like a biblical guidance about how we should obey our earthly masters. This passage is often used to like, talk about how we should comply with the systems of government and how Christians should be the best taxpayers. And I can see it in the text. You could be faithful to the text and preach that, it's fine. 
But I feel like it misses out on the weight of what Christ is getting at here. Christ is calling them and us to lay down our lives, to give back to God what is his. And we cannot fail to hear it. We carry the image of God. Why would he place his image upon us? Because he has a purpose for it. Remember this classic Isaiah 43. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me and the jackals and the owls because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen people, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Do you see what our intention is? God's intention is for us. We are formed in his likeness to proclaim his praise. Our very function is praise, which is why I love that we're a singing people, which is why I love that we testify to the goodness of God, which is why we can't contain the stuff that's within us, because we're made this way, made to bring glory to God. The Greek word used for made in the image is where we get the word icon. It's a Greek word, icon. Each of us is the icon of God. Kings and queens and rulers erect statues of themselves, icons of themselves, so people know who's in charge. You'll see it in dictatorships. They'll, they'll suddenly erect a big statue. Here is an icon to either be worshipped or to, to, to give precedence so that you know who's the boss. To identify who holds the authority, but we are the icon of God. We display his rule. We carry the image of God to reveal his nature and to make him known. It's for purpose that he lays his identity upon us so that we can reveal it to one another. God cannot be seen, the scriptures tell us. And yet God in his amazing wonder and grace chooses to display himself, his image upon our lives. That's the upside down kingdom. That the almighty, the great and glorious creator of all things would decide that he cannot be seen because of his holiness, but yet decides to display his character his image upon us so easily broken so easily marred people if we belong to God and we carry his image then our lives must be laid down in service of him given back to their true purpose Jesus in the temple courts holds in his hand a Roman denarius and he asks that question whose image and inscription are on it. And it's interesting, we draw our attention to Tiberius Caesar, whose sort of image is depicted on it, but there, alongside the face of Tiberius Caesar, is an inscription, and it reads this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And if you flip the coin over, it reads this, Pontifect Maximus, the great high priest. Here in the temple, in the place that Jesus calls home, he holds a coin that declares another man to be son of the divine, son of God. 
holds a coin that, if it's flipped over, declares another man to be the great high priest. Jesus. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, holds a silver coin extracted from the ground which he created, forged by the hands of those he formed in their mother's wombs. Jesus, the true son of God, holds a tiny, tiny coin declaring another man God. Jesus, the true Son of God. Jesus, the only divine. Jesus, the true high priest. Jesus, the only great high priest. Hebrews 5, 5. In the same way, Jesus did not take upon himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he said to another in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the only son and the only great high priest. And yet Jesus brings the great glory to his father as he lays down his life. This is the week in which he will die. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The image of the invisible God made in the likeness of sinful man. What are you doing, God? It makes no sense. The image of the invisible God made like us in our sin, yet for sin, to eradicate sin, he is made like us to die once and for all, death on a cross, just days away. See, Jesus understands the purpose he carries the identity of God. He is the image of the invisible God that he might surrender his life in order to bring glory to God and salvation to God's people. And we are called to do likewise. We glorify God when we recognize his image upon our lives and we offer our lives back to him. This is what it is to follow Christ. His authority is marked upon us. We are his. And we are called, therefore, to surrender all to God. If you belong to God, then give yourself back in true service of him. He is glorified when we recognize his identity upon our lives and submit and lay ourselves down in surrendered worship. What can you give to God? It's a question I love to ask. What can you give to God? What would God want for his birthday? What do you give to the one that not only has all things, but made all things? Well, heaven sings in Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Glory. The glory of God is displayed in your being. The honor of God displayed, portrayed in your life. The power 
of God exhibited in your very existence and God is glorified and honored when we recognize his image in our life. God, you've done a wonderful thing. Your character is displayed on my life and it's for great purpose, for the sake of the lost who have failed to see the glory of God, reveal him and his incredible glory. Lay down your lives again. When we lay our lives down, we reveal him but our lives are so easily distorted. The image of God so easily marred in our life. And I wanted to leave you with this this morning, that God through Christ is at work in us. Colossians 3.10 says, we put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of God. God in his grace is working within us to renew the image of himself. We so easily cover it up with an old self, and the old self that Paul writes to the Colossians is a whole list of horrible sins that seems to almost put a new, like a, an old, dirty man on top of the glory of God, the image of God displayed. But yet Christ offers us this renewal of the image of God. He wants to clean us up. He wants to renew and reshape and reform his image in our lives. Again, so that his glory might be revealed. That we may better show him and reveal him to the world. Maybe today you feel a little bit defaced. Like the image of Christ within you has just been a bit wrecked by some decisions that you've made. And you want to come back to Christ again and say, Lord, just would you renew the knowledge of the image of God. Like, show me again. Show me again your wonderful character. Lord, display that in my life again. And as we just return to sing, can we sing one more time? Would that be all right? I would wonder if you'd just stand up and uh, I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we welcome your work in our lives today. Lord, we recognize that sin so easily entangles us, so distorts the image that you want to display within us. Lord, what incredible grace. What incredible grace that you would want to reveal yourself to the world through our lives. And we want to be good at that, God. We want to recognize your image displayed in our lives and give them back to you for the purpose of your kingdom. So Lord, would you come? Would you work in us today? Strip off the old man, Lord. Strip off anything that holds us back. Shine on us. Reveal yourself again, we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.